Let's pray. Father in heaven, that scripture reading, and certainly the one that we are going to encounter here in just a moment, remind me that my aim this morning is not to preach the Bible. My aim is to preach the gospel by expounding the Bible to the people that you have given me to love. I thank you for that aim. I thank you that it keeps the focus of preaching crystal clear. There's a goal. There's a, um, uh, there's a target that we're aiming at. And it's the cross and the empty tomb of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so how I pray that in this very passage that tells us that he's in the center of the whole scripture, that he would be in the center of this passage as well. Father, may the gospel be, um, uh, may it be fresh water for your people today. May we drink deeply and be satisfied and be so filled with you that we are prepared and oriented properly as we move into this week that's stretched out in front of us. We so want to be useful for the mission and for the vision that you've given our church, and we know how much um, it, it matters for us to gather weekly in rhythms like this and to enjoy your word together. So come and help us to feast on this passage. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you please turn with me in your Bibles, if you haven't already, to the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 24, and beginning in verse 13. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 24, beginning in verse 13. If you'd like to use one of the red Bibles located underneath the seat in front of you, this morning's text is found on page 885 in the red Bibles. Luke's Gospel, chapter 24 beginning in verse 13. We gather this morning, just one week, on the other side of of Resurrection Sunday. Um, Holy Week, culminating in Good Friday, and then Easter Sunday, is marked on the one hand by appropriate, uh, sober reflection, and also glorious celebration. And if you know Jesus, I trust that you experienced those rhythms last weekend. Um, An opportunity to ponder the price that was paid for your redemption at the cross, and then at the same time an opportunity to bask in the promise of what's to come, of which the empty tomb of Jesus is the first fruits. I don't know about you, but walking through the paces of each Holy Week each year, it, it, as it comes to the crescendo, especially of Easter Sunday, um, I, I feel a sigh of relief on the other side of Easter Sunday. And that's to take nothing away from what we celebrate for sure. Um, I suspect it's not intimately so much connected with what I do for a living. I, I suspect I'm not alone here. Um, that the drama of our observance of the death and the resurrection of Jesus leaves more than just a few of us sucking some wind this time of year. I mean, last weekend, some of us are traveling to be with family members. Others of us had the privilege of, of hosting guests. Our Sunday morning worship gathering is, is usually wonderfully filled with visitors for which we are thankful. Um, but when it's all said and done, all the festivities tend to result in us feeling a little bit just kind of road hard and put away wet, you know. 
If Resurrection Sunday is in some sense um, the great corporate worship explosion of the liturgical year, what do we do for an encore? You know what I mean? If the fire of God's people burns brightest and hottest on the morning that we celebrate the empty tomb, what about the morning that follows the morning we celebrate the empty tomb? You know, like, what's next? Well, here's what's next. Luke chapter 24, beginning in verse 13. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all the things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a a man who was a prophet mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. And we had hoped that he was, but we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it's now the third day since these things have happened. Moreover, some of the women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who had said that he was alive. Now, some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them, and their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. And they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven, and those who were with them gathered together, saying, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was made known to them in the breaking of the bread. Easter's afterglow tends to fade fast, but there is a way to keep your pilot light lit, and this passage shows us how. So Easter's afterglow tends to fade fast, but there is a way to keep your pilot light lit, and this passage shows us how. You know, what a, you know what a pilot light is, right? It's a small flame that serves as an ignition source for a, a more powerful burner. These days, it's more common to light a burner elect, electronically than it is to uh, uh, let pilot lights run 24-7, but... Um, 
when they do, when they ignite, they are capable of igniting flames that burn hot and bright and provide heat and light for your life. So when Easter's afterglow tends to fade, there is a way to keep your pilot light lit, and this passage shows us how. So I've got two, two ways to show us from this passage. Here's the first point today. If you want your heart to burn with affections for the risen Christ deep into the days ahead, then ask God to help you to learn the pages that point to him. If you want your heart to burn with affections for the risen Christ deep into the days ahead, then ask God to help you to learn the pages that point to him. So we're, we're fresh off the Easter celebration, and let's say your Bible plan has you in Second Chronicles right now, or you're in Nahum. How do you find your way to the Savior? By learning the pages that point to him. Look with me at 13 to 16 once more here. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about these things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Now we need to hold it up right there and just set the scene a little bit. According to verse 13, it's still Easter. It's Resurrection Sunday. It continues to unfold because Luke says in in verse 13, that very day. Um, And you get a sense from the tenor of the account that um, on the one hand, morning is in the rearview mirror and they're anticipating evening. Maybe the afternoon hours have begun. The account never technically calls these two men disciples, but it's it's very, very clear that's, that's exactly what they are. Verse 13 refers to the men as two of them. And the them, which Luke refers to as undoubtedly the band of disciples to whom the women spoke in verses 8 to 11. Um, remember Luke 24, 9 tells us that it wasn't only the 11 disciples whom the women addressed, but a group that Luke refers to as all the rest. Well, these men are a part of all the rest of the disciples that are with them. Now Luke goes on to tell us in verses 14 and 15 that while they were heading home, to the small outlying village of Emmaus, about six miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. They were talking and discussing together. At this point, the commentators here are awfully lively when they think about these verses. Uh, Some say they were carrying on an intense discussion, uh, a wide-ranging conversation. It's, It's a debate even. It's an emotional dialogue. And there's no doubt this this is all about Jesus. Jesus is the topic of discussion here for these two men. A lot has happened in Jerusalem over the last week, and understandably, they're trying to process and to put all of this into place. And it's moments like this one in life where the term irony, I think, is is tailor-made, isn't it? These two men are immersed in a deep theological discussion about Jesus And guess who shows up? Jesus. They're conversing about him. They're discussing about him. There was a dialogue, a debate centered on him. And Luke tells us, there he is. Verses 15 and 16, while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Very, very important sentence. Their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Who's responsible for that? Well, recalling the prayer of Jesus in Luke 10.21, my money is on God the Father. 
In Luke 10, 21, Jesus prays, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and have revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. That's the Father's work. Yes, our sin blinds us, that's for sure. And yes, Satan himself has the ability to blind the minds of unbelievers, that's true. But in the broader context of Luke's gospel, as well as just in the broader context of the sovereignty of God, it's a safe bet that God is the one who is in charge of this visual and spiritual impairment. Well, this is where Luke's just getting warmed up. Uh, In the verses that follow, Jesus begins to draw these two men out. Uh, By the way, perhaps it's caught your eye over the years, but we have a, a portrait of this text hanging in Fellowship Hall. It's on the north side of the room there as you leave it. Take a look at it. Um, It's simply titled Road to Emmaus. The original was painted by Robert Zund in 1877. It's worth your careful examination and enjoyment. It's It's a beautiful painting and it captures on canvas what's happening here in this text. So Jesus jumps into the dialogue. It's now a trialogue and in verse 17, what is this conversation that you are holding with one another as you walk? What things? are you talking about? I hope you can picture this in your mind. What things, fellas? Here's where we get one of their names. Uh, Cleopas speaks up and says in verse 19, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, sheesh, who is this guy? How could you not know who Jesus is? He must be from out of town. How could you not know who Jesus is? And And then Cleopas begins to tell Jesus, who Jesus is. This is about the strangest thing in the world. Can you imagine the look on our Lord's face in this moment? Okay, so he was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and the people, anything? Jesus is just, hmm, fascinating. As it relates, uh, he relates to Jesus the account of his own Passion Week here. He reminds him of his sentencing, of his crucifixion. He goes so far as to admit that they had even hoped that he might be the redeemer, that he might be the, del- the deliverer. He doesn't use the word Messiah, but that's what he's getting at here. They, they thought he might be the Christ, but evidently not. And he goes on to tell the Lord that it's been three days since his death and no one can find his body. Okay, the irony is so thick you could cut it with a knife. Oh, sure, there are these crazy women who claim there were some angels that said he was risen from the dead, but, I mean, you know, women... Can you picture Cleopas at this moment? I mean, just to make a point, he's maybe even poking Jesus in the chest, saying, they can't even find his body. Poke, poke, poke. Jesus is just, I see, yes. In the opening pages uh, of of his marvelous book, Preaching the Whole Bible as Christian Scripture, uh, the author Graham Goldsworthy tells a a time-honored tale that, that evidently crops up in more than one culture. This is what he writes. There's a story told about an Australian school teacher who found that her approach to teaching was in need of some remedial action. She thought she was altogether too predictable and that the children were becoming bored with her storytelling and then her questioning the class about what they had learned each class. So she decided to rectify matters. The next Sunday, after the preliminaries were over, she stood before her class of five-year-olds and asked, "'Who can tell me what is gray and furry and lives in a gum tree?' The children were completely taken by surprise at her fresh tack. 
And they thought that there must be some catch, so they just blankly stare back at their teacher. Come on, she coaxed. Someone's got to know. What's gray and and furry and lives in a gum tree, has a, a black leathery nose and beady eyes? Silence. She's just about to switch tactics when a little girl raises her hand tentatively with much hesitation. Delighted and relieved, the teacher leans over and says, Susie, thank you, thank you. The child replied, I know the answer is Jesus, but it sure sounds like a koala bear to me. (laughs) Now, that story is frequently told in order to highlight how insufferably predictable our Bible teaching can become if we're not careful. It's also told as a cautionary tale of how many times in Sunday school classes we can sadly create the environment, I think unintentionally, that there's an expectation that certain questions aren't allowed to be asked or only certain answers are admissible and safe here. Well, based on his response to the two men on the Emmaus Road, Jesus is evidently unconcerned about either one of these lessons because he says to them in verses 25 to 27, Oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now what's absolutely fascinating here is that these two men likely knew the Hebrew Bible. As Jesus' disciples, they had probably heard him predict his Passion Week on multiple occasions. And furthermore, they obviously knew the story of the cross, and they had heard the tale of the empty tomb. And yet how hesitant they are to root any of this in the Scriptures themselves. And we typically give these guys a hall pass, remembering that at this point we wouldn't have fared any better than these men. I realize that. But you'll notice here, Jesus gives them no quarter. He doesn't give them an inch of breathing room. Foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? The word for foolish there in verse 25 is the same one that the Apostle Paul uses to speak to the Galatians in Galatians 3.1 and 3.3. It's a pretty harsh word. It means stupid. New Testament scholar Daryl Bach observes, the consensus is that first century Judaism did not anticipate a suffering Messiah. Nonetheless, Jesus says that the Old Testament prophets had such expectations. He's right. The Old Testament prophets certainly did. Jesus did too, over and over again. And what gets him in such a twist here is that his own disciples didn't. Now let's remember the broader point of this passage here, this point. If you want your heart to burn with affections for the risen Christ deep into the days ahead, then ask God to help you to learn the pages that point to him. When I say learn the pages that point to him, I don't simply mean a select set of passages that point to Jesus or verses. What I mean to say is that when we approach our Bibles, we need to pay awfully close attention here to what Jesus does and to what Luke says in verse 27. And beginning with Moses, that's the very beginning, by the way, 
and all the prophets, that's shorthand for the rest of the Old Testament, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now, this sort of Christ-centered view of the Bible appears time and again in the pages of the New Testament. Think of Jesus' words to the Pharisees in John 5, 39 to 40, where he castigates them by saying, you search the scriptures because you suppose that in them you have eternal life, and yet it is they that testify to me, and you refuse to come to me to have that life. Or consider Paul's claim in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, that all of the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. How many promises of God? All of the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. That is a stunning claim. Or think about when Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.15, we heard it read for us just a moment ago, that how from childhood Timothy has been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation, which is through faith in Christ Jesus. Remembering that the sacred writings in Paul's case were the Old Testament scriptures. The Old Testament, Paul tells Timothy, is able to make you wise for salvation, which is through faith in Christ Jesus. Now, we could go on like this. I, I trust you sense that when we approach the Scriptures, we always need to bear in mind that there is a person behind every page that we're reading. That person's name is Jesus. Now, I've never heard anyone put this more brilliantly than Tim Keller I had the privilege of being in the Arnold Olson Chapel at Trinity a dozen years ago when Dr. Keller first spoke these words, and I'll never forget them. Here's what he said. Jesus is the true and better Adam who passed the test in the garden and whose obedience was imputed to us. Jesus is the true and better Abel who, though innocently slain, has blood that cries out not for our condemnation but for our acquittal. Jesus is the true and better Abraham who answered the call of God to leave all of the comfortable and familiar and go out into the void, not knowing whither he went to create a new people of God. Jesus is the true and better Isaac, who was not just offered up by his father on the mount, but was truly sacrificed for us. And when Abraham says, now I know that you love me, because, and when God said to Abraham, now I know that you love me because you have not withheld your son, your only son you love from me, now we can look at God taking his son up on the mountain and sacrificing him and say, now we know that you love us. Because you did not withhold your only son, your son from us. Jesus is the true and better Jacob who wrestled and took the blow of justice that we deserve. So we, like Jacob, only receive the wounds of grace to wake us up and discipline us. Jesus is the true and better Joseph who, at the right hand of the king, forgives all those who betrayed and sold him and uses his power to save them. Jesus is the true and better Moses who stands in the gap between the people and the Lord and who mediates a new covenant. Jesus is the true and better rock of Moses, who struck with the rod of God's justice, now gives us water in the desert. Jesus is the true and better Job, the truly innocent sufferer, who intercedes for and saves his stupid friends. Remember, that's what Jesus calls them in verse 25. Jesus is the true and better David, whose victory becomes his people's victory, though they never lifted a stone to accomplish it themselves. Jesus is the true and better Esther, who didn't just risk leaving an earthly palace, but who lost the ultimate and heavenly one, who didn't just risk his life, but who gave his life to save his people. Jesus is the true and better Jonah, who was cast out into the storm so that we could be brought in. Jesus is the real rock of Moses, the real Passover lamb, innocent, perfect, helpless, slain so that the angel of death would pass over us. 
He's the true temple, the true prophet, the true priest, the true king, the true sacrifice, the true lamb, the true light, the true bread. You getting the idea? Easter's afterglow tends to fade pretty fast. But there is a way to keep your pilot light lit. Keep your nose in your Bible. And if you want your affections to burn hot for the risen Christ deep into the days ahead, then ask God to help you to learn the pages that point to him, to learn how the pages point to him. Second point today to accompany the first. If you want your heart to burn with affections for the risen Christ deep into the days ahead, then ask God to help you to love the person to whom the pages point. Love the person to whom the pages point. Now, this one only makes sense on the heels of what we've just said, particularly in view of what we read in verses 28 to 35. So they drew near to the village to which they were going, and he acted as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it's toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. And when he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them and their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight and they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road and while he opened to us the scriptures? I think we'll save verses 33 to 35 for next week. So let's just, let's take a look at verse 28. This is, this is fascinating. Luke reports that as they drew near to the village to which they were going, he acted as if he were going farther. Can you picture it? They're just on the approach to Emmaus. Emmaus. They are nearly there. He knows it. They know it. And the word acted is is a pretty good translation here. You could also translate it uh, pretended. King James puts it this way. He, He made as though he would have gone farther. That's the idea. Why? I think he's trying to establish the authenticity of the disciples' interest in him. If they're willing to let him go, he'll go. But he'd rather stay. I wonder how many of you adults in the sanctuary this morning had a a really good friend growing up who was just life-giving to be around. You know the kind? Those of you who are kids know exactly what I mean. You get to spend the afternoon with your best friend from school or maybe from the neighborhood and you lose all track of time completely. All of a sudden, you look at the clock and you realize how late it is. What's the next thing you do? Dad, can Jessica stay for dinner? Mom, can we have Chris for supper? Or maybe you shoot for the big one, the sleepover, right? Dad, can Sean sleep over tonight? If dad's in a good mood, what's the next thing he says? It's all right with me, if it's all right with your mother, and you check with his parents. Okay. Why do we go through this choreographed verbal dance with our folks? Because we don't want to have to say goodbye to our friend. You want to milk the whole night if you can. Now, please listen closely. This is precisely the kind of relationship that Jesus wants with every one of his disciples, with you and with me. Does he have that with you? Not just a Bible study, a camaraderie, a friendship. 
an ongoing dialogical relationship all day long into the evening, into the night. Verse 28 again into verse 29. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if they were, he was going farther, but they urged him strongly saying, stay with us for it's toward evening and the day is now far spent. <clears throat> so he went in to stay with them. <clears throat> well, it looks like they pulled it off. Uh, they get Jesus for dinner and evidently a sleepover. Now, verse 30 describes the ancient practice of table fellowship to a T. 2430, when he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. This is familiar territory in Luke's gospel, isn't it? I don't recall who first said it, but someone once observed that when you read through Luke's gospel, Jesus is eating a lot, like a whole lot, to the point where he, in every single passage, is either at or coming away from or heading toward a meal almost every time. And the language here is similar to the feeding of the 5,000 and to that of the Last Supper, but Jesus is performing here neither miracle nor ordinance. What we have here is perhaps most closely paralleled by what he told the church in Laodicea. You know Revelation chapter 3, verse 20? Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. And remember, these words are not spoken in an evangelistic context in Revelation 3.20. We tend to use them that way, but we're taking them out of context when we do. Revelation 20 is a word that Jesus speaks to the church, to professing believers who had begun to drift from him. See, it's one thing to learn the pages that point to him. It's a whole different kettle of fish to begin to love the person to whom the pages point. And that's what we have going on here in this portion of our text. It's not just information. This is quickly becoming transformation for these two men. How so? Well, the evidence is in verse 31. And their eyes were, what? Opened. And they recognized him. Notice that if you lay verse 31 right alongside verse 16, what we discover is that 31 answers verse 16 point by point. Verse 16 says, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Verse 31 says, and their eyes were opened and they recognized him. Now I know this much, if the Lord is the one who is sovereign over their blindness, he's also the one that we can credit with being sovereign over their sight. Now, as soon as their eyes are opened, Jesus disappears. Verse 31 goes on to say that he vanished from their sight. I, I don't know what to make of his disappearance here. I couldn't find a single commentator that would touch it, and I read a lot to get prepared for this kind of thing. It's the product of life in a resurrection body. I'm not sure exactly what to say here, but he's gone. He'll show up again in the next passage. He disappears just as mysteriously as he initially appears. And then finally, we have the much-loved observation of the disciples in verse 32. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us? Did not our hearts burn within us while he spoke to us and opened the Scriptures, talked to us on the road and opened the Scriptures? The language here is reminiscent of David in Psalm 39, verse 3, where he says, My heart became hot within me as I mused, the fire burned, and I spoke. It also recalls the language of the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 20, verse 9, where we read, If I say I will not mention him 
or speak any more in his name, there is in my heart, as it were, a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I am weary of holding it in, and I cannot. And so the disciples say of their experience with Jesus on the Emmaus Road, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road and while he opened the scriptures to us? Do you know, do you know this experience? Do you have anything approaching this kind of familiarity with Jesus and what it is to know a deep and satisfying communion with him? I suspect many of you do. My pastoral hero, John Owen, the Puritan John Owen, knew Jesus this way. Listen to how he put it. These are possibly two of the sweetest sentences that ever escaped this man's pen. Owen once wrote, Christ is our best friend And ere long will be our only friend. I pray God with all my heart that I may be weary of everything else but converse and communion with him. Isn't that incredibly sweet? I want to say that again. Christ is our best friend. And ere long will be our only friend. I pray God with all my heart that I may be weary of everything else but converse and communion with him. One more from from Owen. Owen said this as well. Um, When attempting to get at the answer to the question, how do you do it? Like, how do you actually go about the process of cultivating a relationship with Jesus that, that begins to look like this? This sort of converse and communion with the living Christ? Here's what he said. So helpful. He said, friendship is most maintained and kept up by visits, and these the more free and less occasioned by urgent business. I'll say that again because we need this. Friendship is most maintained and kept up by visits, and these the more free and less occasioned by urgent business. Does your walk with the Lord only tend to fire up when he drops some huge thing into your lap? Or you just need something real bad? And then your heart begins to burn within you. It's not a good sign. It's not a good sign of a healthy relationship. I called my friend Matt Hendrickson last night. I was hoping he would answer. He did. And I wasn't just calling to shoot the breeze, though. I had a favor to ask of him, and I didn't have a whole lot of time to talk at the moment. Our relationship can sustain phone calls like that at the drop of a hat because we've known each other a long time and we've banked a lot of goodwill over the years. But most of our conversations aren't like that. And why? Because we're not really accustomed to using each other as much as enjoying each other. John Owen says, friendship is most maintained and kept up by visits, and these the more free and less occasioned by urgent business. You get this? I hope you're thinking creatively about what this might look like. This is not just your quiet time, although it is. This is much, much more. You can do this in the car in your morning or afternoon commute. You can do this on the boat this summer as you're floating on Cook's Bay. 
This is that cup of decaf that you pour at 9.30 at night just before bed. All you need to do in order to make it holy ground is just simply dedicate this time to the Lord, to being leisurely in his presence. Friendship is most maintained and kept up by visits, and that the more less occasioned by urgent business. He stands at the door and knocks, and if you open, he'll, he'll come in. And you may say, it's, it's been a while, <laughs> and it's a little messy in here. And Jesus says, I know, I'm here to help you clean up. If you want your heart to burn with affections for the risen Christ deep into the days ahead, then ask God to help you, not just to learn the pages that point to him, but to love the person to whom the pages point. Let's review. Easter's afterglow tends to fade fast, but there is a way to keep your pilot light lit. This passage shows us how. If you want your heart to burn with affections for the risen Christ deep into the days ahead, then ask God to help you to learn the pages that point to him and to love the person to whom the pages point. The lessons of the Emmaus Road encounter are many, but the ones we've discovered this morning form a two-beat rhythm, I think, that are capable of, of animating your life and mind day after day after day. Learn the pages that point to him. Love the person to whom the pages point. So this Easter season, let's continue to live in light of the resurrection as we see and savor him in the scriptures. And then don't stop there, but seek to cultivate and enjoy the gifts of his pardon, his presence, his power, his pleasure, his people. Well, next week, we'll return once again to this incredible 24th chapter of Luke's gospel with the study of Luke's version of the Great Commission. It's our second to last sermon in this two and a half year exploration of Luke's gospel. The timing couldn't be more perfect as we begin to look into the spring and summer months here and how we might be used of the Lord to be and make disciples of Jesus as we chase our 2020 vision into the days ahead. But right now, let's pray. Father in heaven, this is a a really sweet passage. We see on the one hand, Jesus' authority over all of the scriptures his self-understanding that he stands right at the center of the entire book, all of it pointing toward him. And how I pray, Father, that you would help us to be people who increasingly are a church that, that don't let these pages go until they bless us with Christ himself, wherever we find ourselves in the scriptures, whether preaching or teaching or counseling simply enjoying you in devotional time, meditating on the scriptures. May we press through all the way through the pages to the person of Jesus. And when we get there, how I ask, Lord, that we would enjoy you, that we would uh, grow to know you as a familiar friend. I thank you for the way that you desire to have table fellowship with us, to enjoy long and extended and protracted communion with us. Lord, friendship is most maintained and kept up by visits. And so how I pray that we would be people also into the days ahead that simply seek to enjoy you, not take things from you, um, but to enjoy you, to receive from you in your presence all that you are for us. And then, Lord, to the degree that you fill us that way, that we would be fit as we're going to look at the passage next week, 
to go into this world with intentionality, to enjoy the gospel ourselves, yes, but then in turn to entrust the gospel to others. We thank you for the gospel of Luke and what you have done in our church and continue to do with it. We look forward to meeting you two more Sundays in this magnificent book of Holy Scripture. In Jesus' name, amen.